Well, we are going to spend some time in the scriptures this morning, and so if you would, if you would take your Bibles and turn in them to that well-known passage in Luke chapter 2, we're going to read uh, verses 8 through 14, but we're going to focus in on verse 11. So let's read Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, and remember as we read, this is God's inspired and inerrant word. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Amen. Well, today is Christmas. That is originally a Christian holiday, and it was designed to celebrate the birth of Jesus, just as Easter celebrates his resurrection. And in this famous passage that we just read, uh, an angel of God announced to, you would think, kings somewhere, some powerful government officials, no, to some shepherds that the Messiah, whose coming had been foretold throughout the Old Testament, had been born in the little village of Bethlehem that very day. The angel also told the shepherds that the announcement of the Messiah's birth was, quote, good news of great joy. In other words, wherever people hear about the birth of Jesus, it ought to elicit great joy in their hearts. And the reason for this, the angel said, is that the Messiah, who was born that day in the city of Bethlehem, was, quote, a savior. In other words, he would one day rescue his people from some great and terrible harm. The question that I want to reflect upon this morning is, what is that harm? And how did Jesus save us from it? So I want to answer those questions this morning so that we might appreciate the glad tidings of the birth of Jesus and be filled with fresh joy this morning as we reflect upon it. So what harm was Jesus born to save us from? Ever since the fall of Adam, the first man in the beginning, mankind has been attacked and oppressed by three great enemies, sin, death, and the devil. And let's just consider those three in turn. First, Jesus was born 
to save us from sin. Jesus was born to save us from sin. What is sin? Well, in short, sin is breaking God's law. In fact, the Apostle John said that sin is lawlessness. But, you know, we won't appreciate the gravity of sin until we understand that it is personal. God created us in his image to reflect his character in our lives. And he has enabled us to know his will, both in our conscience and also in the commands of his word. And his commandments, for instance, that we read about in his word, they reflect to us what is true, right, wise, and good for us as his creatures. By obeying God's commands, we show our love for and our trust in him as our good creator. And it leads us to flourishing, to prosperity, because he has our best interests at heart. But to sin, to disobey God's commands, it reflects a profound suspicion and distrust of him. And it calls his character into question. Indeed, to break God's command indicates the belief that we, as the creatures, are more right, true, wise, and good than he is. And therefore, we ought to determine what to do with our lives instead of him. Sin, in other words, is nothing other than the rebellion of the creature against the creator. It is a deep, personal betrayer, betrayal of the one who is most worthy of our love and our trust. Tragically, sin is also deceitful and destructive. It's like a trap which lures us in with the promise of happiness, only to then take us captive and destroy us. First, sin makes us guilty. You think of a spouse who commits adultery against their spouse with someone else and how they are left guilty and ashamed before their spouse with no hope of ever reversing what has been done. Well, you know, in the same way, sin, every sin, leaves us guilty before God and weighed down with a sense of shame and regret with no hope of ever undoing what we did. Second, sin enslaves us. You know, as a result of Adam's first sin, we were all born with a corrupt nature, a nature that naturally produces thoughts and desires that are not right. And those corrupt thoughts and desires, they dominate us. So that on our own, human beings cannot go a single day even a single hour without sinning in thought, word, or deed. Fallen men and women, as the Apostle Paul put it, are slaves to sin. So sin makes us guilty, sin enslaves us, and then third, sin brings us under a terrible penalty. You know, a person who has, in a fit of anger, murdered someone else, or someone who, in 
a lack of restraint, becomes drunk and drives down the road and kills a family full of people in another car, they know they're going to prison no matter how sorry they are. They've come under a terrible penalty and it's inescapable. There's nothing they can do to prevent it. In the same way, you see, human beings are sinners. And as a result, they face an inevitable penalty of death. The wages, the scripture says, of sin is death. And not just physical death, but an eternal destruction in hell. And there's nothing they can do to prevent it on their own. Their sins cannot be undone by them or made up for. But here is where the announcement of that angel to those shepherds in Luke 2, 10 and 11 comes in. They say, unto us a Savior is born, who is Christ the Lord. Jesus was born to save us from sin. This is what another angel said to Joseph in a dream, saying of his pregnant fiancée, Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And what has Jesus done to save us from our sins? He has borne our sins. He has borne the guilt for our sins in himself upon the cross. He has paid the penalty of death and destruction which our sins deserved in our place. He was condemned and punished before God so that we who believe in him would not have to be, so that we could be forgiven and set free. And then having risen from the dead, he has raised us from spiritual death to spiritual life by the power of the Holy Spirit, granting us repentance in our hearts and faith and trust in him so that we might no longer be enslaved to the lusts of our sinful nature. I think of that wonderful passage in Colossians 2, 13 through 14, where Paul said, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So first, Jesus was born to save us from sin. Second, Jesus was born to save us from death. The Lord had warned Adam in the garden of, against eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he had said in Genesis 2.17, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But when Adam did eat it, along with his wife, Genesis 3 tells us, the Lord did not immediately strike him dead. Instead, they immediately suffered a spiritual death in terms of their relationship with God. And they began slowly dying physically. And they faced the prospect of an eternal destruction, which the Bible calls the second death. 
Now, these terrible consequences of Adam's sin were passed down like an awful inheritance to all of his descendants because he was their representative head before God. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, in Adam all die. So now all mankind, as the Narnia trilogy put it, as sons and daughters of Adam, are born into a state of spiritual death, are in a process now of physically dying, and are headed to an eternal death in hell. You know, Paul provided that so famous but sober and realistic assessment of the miserable condition of fallen humanity. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, he said, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And you know, it's not as if we landed in that condition through no fault of our own. You know, like someone knocked into a pit. No. Even though we did inherit the consequences of Adam's sin, yet we too are sinners, and we have added a a whole mountain of our own sin onto the pile. We could all say with the psalmist, for my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. See, every human being, man, woman, child, is in desperate need of salvation from death. We're all like a man swept by an undertow out to sea, with no life jacket and no one to search for him. It's just a matter of time before we perish. Or perhaps better, we're all like prisoners, condemned for a grievous crime, held in a dungeon to await our execution with no hope of escape. Death is certain. Except the situation for mankind is far more dire than this. Because the ultimate experience of death which humanity faces is far more worse than drowning in the open sea or even being executed. The Apostle John described it in Revelation 21.8, he said, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, which is the second death. Jesus described it as a place of outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you see, this is the situation of mankind in their natural condition. This was the situation of all of us who are here today. How terrible, how hopeless that seemed. But this is why, you see, it is such good news, good news of great joy for all people When that angel announced to the shepherds in Luke 2.11 that the child born that day in Bethlehem was a savior, the very God against whom we had sinned, the God whom all humanity will stand before as their judge on the final day, 
He saw us in our desperate condition. And because of his great love and pity and compassion upon us, he sent his eternal divine son into the world to be our savior. Listen again to those most famous words of John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And how did Jesus, the son of God, save us from death? By dying in our place upon the cross. The ancient prophet foresaw it. He said, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus, the Messiah, suffered, as the old confessions put it, the wrath and curse of God, dying a sinner's death on the cross, that death that we deserved, before rising again victorious over death for us, that we might be saved from death and live forever in joyful fellowship with him. So second, Jesus was born to save us from death. And now third, and finally, Jesus was born to save us from the devil. Jesus was born to save us from the devil. You know, the true horror of our natural condition as human beings can't be fully grasped without recognizing the fact that we are opposed and attacked by a personal creature whom the Bible identifies as the devil or Satan. He is a creature like us, but an invisible spirit like the holy angels. And like mankind, he himself was once holy, but also rebelled against God along with a host of other angelic beings now called in the scriptures demons. And in his fallen state, all the intelligence and power which God has given to Satan has now been corrupted and twisted so that he now uses it to defile and to destroy God's creation. Now, as a creature, the devil is no true rival to God. Yet we must understand just how formidable an adversary he is to us. Do you remember the old hymn that Martin Luther wrote when he said of the devil, his craft and power are great, armed with cruel hate. He is cunning and powerful, and his cunning and power are beyond any human being. He is unsurpassed in his wickedness, in his twistedness. Indeed, the scriptures present Satan as the most powerful and evil of all the fallen creatures in the universe. One who is capable of perpetrating far greater atrocities than the worst human being if he were not restrained from doing so by God. And the frightening truth revealed in the scripture is that ever since the fall, When Adam and Eve listened to the voice of Satan, 
He has now exercised an authority, an influence over the world of men. Jesus famously called him, quote, the ruler of this world. John ominously declared at the end of his first epistle, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So we do not see him, but Satan is there bending all of his malevolent cunning and power to dominate and oppress human beings. This is why Paul described him in Ephesians 2 too, as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So that humanity unwittingly follows him to their own dishonor and destruction. And unlike even the worst of human tyrants, Satan is completely devoid of pity or compassion. He shows no restraint in his efforts to destroy God's creation, especially God's image-bearing creatures. You think of when you read the Gospels and you read of so many who were possessed by demons and what they sought and did to those poor people whom they demonized. That gives you a glimpse of what Satan would do to any of us if given the chance. He delights to deceive people into believing lies, to allure them into enslaving sin, to bully them into moral compromise, all of which will result to his pleasure in ruin in this life and destruction with him in eternity. You know, there's a sense in which the fallen human race languishes now under the tyranny and the oppression of the most wicked and powerful tyrant that has ever existed. Think, if you know your history, of the sorrow and the despair which people experienced under the oppressive rule of men like Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong, even in the last century. And now consider that every one of human beings, unwittingly, apart from Christ, lives under the oppressive tyranny of a far more powerful and malevolent tyrant, the one who Jesus called Beelzebul, the ruler of demons, end quote. And this awful truth as well is what makes that announcement of the angel in Luke 2.11 such good news of great joy because it announces the arrival of a savior who would deliver us from the power of Satan. You know, long ago, the Lord promised, you remember, in Genesis 3.15, that a descendant of the woman would rise to crush the head of that ancient serpent, the devil, who had deceived Eve in the garden. And the New Testament announces the joyous news that Jesus the child born to Mary in Bethlehem, is that promised descendant. The Apostle John put it this way in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. How did he do it? In a twist of irony, Jesus defeated Satan and delivered those held captive by him by giving himself up into the power of Satan to die a humiliating and torturous death 
as a sacrifice. You remember the author of Hebrews explained it this way in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In this way, you see, Jesus brought the devil to his knees and led his people out from the devil's oppressive rule under which they had languished as slaves to sin and death. I think of that wonderful description in Colossians 1, 13-14, where Paul says of God, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, it was a mighty exodus. Like when the Lord led Israel out of slavery in Egypt, except the enemy and the oppression were far worse and the deliverance far greater. So you see, When we read the words of Luke 2.11, where the angel said to the shepherds, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We can understand why the angel called that announcement good news of great joy. Because Jesus was born to save us from the power and penalty of our sin from the prospect of certain and eternal death, and from the malevolent tyranny of the devil himself. Treasure up those truths in your hearts, believers, so that they might, as the hymn, the old Christmas carol put it, give you wonder and joy this Christmas, and lead you to a greater love and a greater loyalty to Jesus, your Savior. An unbeliever, perhaps God has enabled you this morning to appreciate the dire state that your soul truly is in. And if so, then I would just tell you, hear the glad tidings of great joy. Unto you is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He offers to save you as a free gift of grace if you will simply come to him in faith. You know, Paul told the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, and I would say it to you this morning, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. May this Christmas day be the day of your salvation. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for a wonderful time this morning of worshiping you. We pray that you would bless our time of worship to our souls and that it would resound to your glory and the glory of your Son, our Savior. We honor you, we thank you, we praise you for the glad tidings of great joy that he was born to us as Savior. And we pray that you would strengthen our faith Fill us with renewed love for him and appreciation for him. 
amidst the presence and the fun today, that our hearts will be worshipful as well. And Father, we pray that you would bless our last song and the rest of our day with rich fellowship around these truths. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.